Petri Dish is a product of Petri Dish Media, all rights reserved. Petri Dish is a science comedy podcast and should not be used as medical advice. Do not get medical advice from a podcast. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein... Science! Science! Once upon a labroom dreary, while Nate made cocktails drunk and merry, Sean gassed a thousand mice forevermore. As he studied their tumors hairy, there was a tremor, faint but scary. Was it a quake? No. Sean quickly parried. It is a hidden lab of dark and forgotten lore. Science we must study, nevermore. By the safety shower, a portal glistened. Sean put out his hand. Shut up and listen to the cries of lab men who have since been stricken to rotten hell with the false prophets of scientific yore. Stay away, dear brother. I do implore. But drunk Nathan, as if on a lark, Hey, let's go! He began to bark. And before Sean could reply with snark, Nathan had hopped straight through that dammit door. So into hell Sean followed that little whore. To their horror, the doorway closed, and in the darkness, researchers rose. Cookie scientists have decomposed, assembled round the brothers in eager rows. These lab coat ghouls parted to reveal their rotted leader, a man named Neil, whom Sean remembered, a man he killed for a quaint and curious volume of scientific lore. Neil had some research that Sean did covet on the neuropathic impact of the Muppets, the addictive havoc wrought by those woolen strumpets, havoc wrought upon the minds of children forevermore. So Sean shot him dead and hid his body in the Scottish moors. I'll have my revenge, Neil did bellow. I'll cook your fat into a tallow. Your blood I'll pour on my fields left fallow. Oh, what gruesome pains and pleasure you'll have in store for stealing my research and killing me in the Scottish moors. Wait, Sean cried. What about Article 7, that dastardly amendment to the Geneva Convention? If I remember, that document doth make mention of a little law that may save us from your unbridled scorn. I have the right to tell you stories three of strange science with strange hypotheses, models of grave grotesqueries, and if these tales they do please, you are obliged to set us free. And if not, Neil laughed, ah, you with us you must spend eternity. So what are we doing? Nathan asked, wasting time, so Sean explained without a rhyme. We're going to talk about three Halloween-themed science topics, and if they're good, we're going to escape from this laboratory in hell. Oh, okay, cool. So, dear listener, please prepare for some spooky science with some thrills and scares. If you're not careful, you'll be ensnared. Continue listening, if you dare! The dreaded Kandiru. The dreaded Kandiru. A naughty little fish with a penchant for swimming up a man's urethra to feed on the damaged tissue of the pitiful, pitiful mass of flesh you once called your penis! Venture Brothers, live forever. Yeah. Its cancellation is the only news that matters <laughs> out of 2020. Yeah, the Guys, entire year. Please write in to your congresspeople. <laughs> To President Trump, nothing's happening to him. <laughs> to Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, 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 please. If Venture Brothers comes to the Supreme Court, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uphold its constitutional right to life! <laughs> all right, all right. So, yeah, the Venture Brothers did mention this particular fish, the Kandiru. Right, and why is this one of the Halloween stories we're telling to these dreadsome ghouls, Sean? Right. It's just a fish. Who cares? Well, the Kandiru is a fish that hangs out in the Amazon basin and is also called the Kenyero. The toothpick fish, or the vampire fish. Mm. All right. And unlike the vampire octopus who fucking doesn't eat blood or any, like, animal or anything like that. This and does. boring as shit. This one actually does feed on blood. Okay. okay. It is a parasite, and it's hematohematophagy. 
Phagic. Okay. 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 Which means that it eats that blood. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little tiny jabroni. It's got a little tiny head, so it can get in there. Right? Okay. Start I, eating. I get into wherever blood is. Like, I guess that's gills on a fish, right? Right. It gills. likes to sneak into the gills. It's got these little barbels on its face. Barbels are like a, they look like whiskers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, Because it's a kind of catfish. Actually. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So it's got these little barbels on its face, and it's got these little like spiky things so that it won't get dislodged easily. Okay. So it actually kind of like hooks in. To the gills of fish and sucks on the blood. So far, I don't know, kind of gross, but you had mentioned a penis earlier. <laughs> yes. I think I'm putting one to one right together. <laughs> what, what, what does the Candira do to its human victims? Well, okay. So, so uh, we, we can, yeah, we can jump ahead to the human victims for a second, of which there are probably none. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think there was a story from 1997 from Brazil, of doctors removing a candiru from a dude's penis. But it's not clear how the candiru got up in there. All right. As in, <laughs> some people are wondering if, like, the fish actually swum up there under its own volition. Oh, you think a dude, like, shoved a little fish up his dick? Yeah, for fun. Wow. Or for notoriety. But the, the, oh. the point is that, like, there's this idea and the folklore out there. Okay. These guys like sucking on blood. The Amazon basin in the area where they live, the water's really turbid. It's got a lot of, like, mud and shit in it. It's really hard to see anything. Right. So okay. just like me on a Friday night in... I was reading about the sex maze in Palm Springs. Yeah. It's like that. It is. <laughs> it just kind of tumbles into a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea, okay, is that, like, they'll hunt day or night. Maybe sight isn't so important for them to find their prey. Okay. But instead, maybe it's chemoattractants. Maybe they're detecting chemicals in the water. Ooh. Um, the gills on fish are usually a site of a lot of ammonia exchange. It's like yeah. one of the places where they like release a lot of basically their form of urine. Right. And so the thought is maybe they use ammonia or something like that to be able to detect where the gills are mm. so they can feast. And urine has some nitrogenous compounds like urea and sometimes a little bit of ammonia. Right. So the thought is maybe, hey, if you're peeing in the river... The candiru get attracted to the pee. Right. And maybe they want to feast so bad, they'll swim up your urine stream. Damn. And into your penis. That's a lot of ammonia. I haven't had that much ammonia in my pee since I ate some some skate in South Korea. Yeah. And then I went to this gym that was all old dudes. <laughs> and like, wow, man, just ammonia frothing <laughs> just up. Not nonstop ammonia. Yeah, I didn't really know what ammonia smelled like. And I walked in that room just <laughs> wafting. And they looked at me and they were like, you smell a lot like ammonia, buddy. <laughs> it's kind of a fishy smell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a candiru went where to my dick. <laughs> yeah. It found you all the way yeah, in uh, Japan. Yeah, it flipped right out of this Korean faucet. <laughs> and it was like, where's that dick? So there's stories about candiru yeah. going up people's butts. Wow. Going up the vagine. Okay, okay. Okay, swimming up penises. So there's these stories that are out there, and a lot of those stories actually get traced back to some, like, Germans. Okay. Like German ethnographers that were like in the Amazon basin and stuff like that. And were like getting told stories from local people. Sure. And like, and like man, it's like these candiru are just like feasting on penis flesh. Famous lack of humor compared to the famous stand-up comedians of the Amazonia basin. <laughs> who were like, who were just telling these great routines. And like the Germans just didn't pick it up. So it's interesting because at this point there's like you know, whatever, like 50 stories about Candiru feasting on penises. Right. But as far as we can tell, almost all of them are traced back, ultimately, to like two German ethnographers. There was this German guy in, do you remember his name? He was like in the early 1800s. He was buddies with TJ, hung out with a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers at the time. Just like, loved banging ass just anywhere in the world. And he just like loved South America. And it was like kind of a big deal. He was actually venerated in America for several decades. And then we're like, wait, he was a scientist? Fuck that guy. I don't want to talk about it anymore. What did he study? Uh, like ass. <laughs> <laughs> the first man to map the ass. <laughs> Olympus Mons. You know? I don't think I know who you're talking about. Because I, okay. I, I was thinking about like Boas. Right, right, but he was an anthropologist. Okay, on our break, I'm going to look look this up. I mean, I love Boaz. Okay, Boaz <laughs> is good too. But this guy, he deserves to be remembered because he's a cool dude who's like All very right. libertine. All right, well, I hope you guys are waiting for that when we get to the next topic. Yeah. Nathan will just you... suddenly shout out a German name. <laughs> and that's how you'll know. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, you know, these Kandiru, they are very good at sucking on blood, and when a penis is uh, engorged, yes. there's some blood in there. Okay, so 
It has swum up erect penises. There's no confirmed situation where a kandiru swam up a penis. How about some vagina? Has it swum up some vaginas? As far as I understand, there's no confirmed humans getting feasted on by kandiru, except for in 1997, this Brazilian dude with a kandiru in his dick. Right, okay. But how did it get there, guy? Because his story is that he was peeing in the river all innocent-like. Yeah. And then a kandiru swam up the stream and into his penis. Uh, but kandiru don't normally swim that fast. What what happened to his penis? Oh, they did some surgery shit. They got the kandiru out of there. And I don't know. He's probably still got a dick. Oh, okay. He's probably still good. I oh, my know. God. That's terrifying. You can bounce back from a lot. I wouldn't. <laughs> you I'd just die. give up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'd lose me. They're like, what is this So... You know, it's interesting, Kandiro, speaking of them not, like, swimming super vigorously, for very long anyway. Like, especially, to swim up a urine stream, you have to do a lot of work. Okay. And Kandiro, actually, one of the things that they do is they'll latch on to the skin of, uh, what are those things called? Boto? The, 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 the river dolphins. Oh, okay, yeah. They'll latch onto the skin of the river dolphins, but they're not feeding on them. They're just, like, biting onto the skin and then hitching a ride. Oh, interesting. Because the Boto could swim way better than the fucking Kandiru of can. And so you can find Boto with, like, fucking, like, 20 Kandiru just, like, hitching a ride. Unlike Kandiru, there are many reported cases of Boto with some dick. <laughs> yeah, but that's usually human to Boto transmission of penis. You know what I mean? Hey, yeah. <laughs> And not always, man. I've read about the dolphins at SeaWorld. Okay, that was dolphin to lady. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's horrifying. All right, all right, all right. Okay, so, well, what do you say to that, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so the last thing I'll say is that actually science has attempted to look at, hey, if you have Kandiru hanging out, do they react to things like urine or ammonia or anything like that? And the only thing that got Kandiru excited was seeing another fish swimming around. Oh. They did these experiments with, like, tanks, and they had Kandiru in them, and they would, like, put a goldfish in. Mm. And the goldfish would be all stupid, like, bloop, bloop, bloop. And then, yeah. the, and then Kandiru would just, like, flip the fuck out and go up and feed on it. Wow. But when they put in, like, little drops of, like, ammonia or, like, put in drops of urine. Too smart fucking, for that. Kandiru just hung out in the mud at the bottom. They were like, fuck that shit. Uh, and you're telling me you, re- you really believe, you really believe... That scientist didn't put his dick in that. <laughs> Come on. We both know a scientist. Okay. And the scientist I know, Sean, would have put his dick in that tank. I would do the urine test first. That's all. I'm not saying I wouldn't do the penis test. I would just confirm with urine first. Okay. Well, once you've discovered urine's not enough, maybe it takes the waggle waddle sure, battle sure. of the peen. You got to do a little wiggle waggle. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And there's like the ladies. <laughs> yeah. Got to do a little wiggle waggle. <laughs> Sean's walking down the street. Well, you can tear it away, Sean and Wack. He's a Kandiru man. Wiggle up a dick. We've all been to the club. <laughs> we know how it works. We all know Jay-Z, New York. <laughs> That's the last club song I know. I haven't been to the club in a real long time. <laughs> okay, guys. We're going to take a break. We're going to cool off. It's really hot in lab hell. You are sweaty. I actually am pretty sweaty. <laughs> It's so hot in lab hell. Like, oh, God. Okay. So they're going to take a break. And when we're back, we're going to talk about more fucked up shit. Yes. This Halloween Petri dish episode. Spooky. The Syrian refugee crisis. The civil war in Yemen. The genocide of the Rohingya. When's the last time anyone even gave a shit about that stuff? We don't think about it anymore. We don't care. Because we're all playing Animal Crossing. Available on Nintendo Switch today! This episode is presented by Wild CBD. Wild produces the best tasting edibles on the market, using real fruit and all natural flavoring. With flavors inspired by the Pacific Northwest, high quality ingredients, real fruit, and consistent dosing, Wild has become one of the leading cannabis edible producers in the country. Wild's new CBD line currently offers real fruit-infused gummies in blackberry, huckleberry, lemon, and raspberry. And CBD-infused sparkling water in raspberry, lemon, blackberry, and blood orange. Each gummy is dosed with 25 milligrams of CBD and can be purchased in a bottle of 10 or 20. Wild CBD is offering our listeners 30% off their next purchase from wildcbd.com by using the promo code POD. That's wildcbd.com, W-Y-L-D-C-B-D.com, using the code POD, P 
P-O-D, for 30% off your next purchase. Wild CBD products are intended only for use by individuals aged 18 and older. Wild CBD products should only be consumed as directed on the label and should not be used if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. All Wild CBD products are made with ingredients containing 0% THC. Consult with a health professional prior to using Wild CBD in combination with any medications or other dietary supplements. Ah, the dreaded Kandiru! A horror find! One feasts upon my peen all the time. Ugh. Silence! Tell us two more vile grotesqueries, and we may yet set you free. Well, gird your Kandiru-infested loins for the horrifying tale of capitalism and science, of unsafe work conditions and radioactive babies. Prepare for the Radium Girls. Spooky science number two. The Radium Girls. In 1898, right before the start of a new century, Mary Curie and her husband announced the discovery of a new element, the second she had discovered. Which, which Sean told me... Actually, wait, what's the first element? What, uh, what was the element called? Yeah, so this new element was called radium. And the one before that, he was just telling me, was called Poldlandium. <laughs> Polonium. For Poland! <laughs> For Poland, that is true, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because even though she was doing her research in France, she was from Poland. Yeah. Right. That's a bummer. You don't have anything to say about Pollocks? Any kind of really insulting insulting stuff? I recently Pierogies? learned that 90% of our listenership is Polish. <laughs> okay. Which amazed me. Because we we're not a Polish-speaking podcast. That's true. But I don't want to offend them anymore. I love their sausages. I know you do, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, this new element called radium quickly proved to be super interesting. Okay, with the Curies publishing over 30 papers on it over the next four years. All right. Yeah, and then being dead for the next fucking <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, it got them eventually. It took yeah. a little bit. But they coined the term radioactivity, and they showed even that uh, tumor-forming cells could be destroyed by radium. Oh my god, that's where that word comes from. I mean, just I was pumping some beats on the way here, and he's like, radioactive, radioactive. <laughs> and I was like, what an interesting word. Yes. I wonder what that means. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, radioactivity and yeah. radium, yes. Imagine dragons, dude. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> Radioact. Is that, wait, is that Imagine Dragons? You, it's somebody like them anyway. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. <laughs> anyway, radium and radioactivity certainly were very cool. And also the fact that radium by itself can kind of faintly glow in the dark. Also pretty awesome. Well, you know, when I hear that, I think money. Yeah. That's Put that point. on everything and it'll shine like the stars, bitch. There was cool shit, though, that they did. Okay, because, like, they would have the radium in a little glass container or something and they'd, like, wrap it up in some cotton. And then, like, a little while later, the cotton would, like, fall apart into dust. Right, because the energy coming out of the radium. That should have been... That, you should have known something was up. <laughs> well, see... Wow. They, they did know something. Well, well, we'll get into it. Anyway, so the power of radium and radioactivity really seized the minds of, like, the world. And, like, especially in the U.S. Right. Okay? This was, like, a full-blown craze. All right? Radium was pretty hard to isolate. Okay? So it was rare and pretty expensive. And that made it even more cool to the public. Hey, not everywhere in the world. You know what people didn't care? Jeju Island. Okay, those are tough people. They're diving for fucking shit. Yeah. <laughs> Pearls. Probably. Okay, they're pearl diving. Yep. And they're like, I don't need any of that. That's shiny. They wrapped some cotton around it. Cotton fell apart. They're like, that must be dangerous. Yeah. And like bad, because that was their good cotton. Jeju Island. <laughs> yeah, that was the only cotton they had on the island. <laughs> cotton was like fucking 100 years old. They got it from the mainland. Um, anyway. So, okay, so everyone in the public was like, oh, tits, this is like glowy ass shit. Right. And it was so intense, the public's love of radium, that a whole bunch of products just started tossing the word radium in and right. like said that they had radium or that they were related to radium. Yeah. I remember the radium man was the sequel to the music man. And that was that guy's last appearance. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead. But like you could find radium in shit like makeup. There is a, a kind of butter. That was called Radium Brand Creamery Butter. Did it, did, it, did it have radium in it? I think that one did not have radium. Okay. That's good. But they had water that had radium in it. Wow. Okay, and they had radium toothpaste, radium food. Yeah. You know, it was, it, like, it was supposed to invigorate sure. you. Radium makes me feel 30 years younger. 
Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fuck t- that guy. Topical. Yeah, um, that was a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So the radium water that I was talking about, Radithor, mm. okay, actually did have radium in it. Okay, so this wasn't just like a marketing scheme. It had radium in it, and production was halted after 40,000 bottles were sold due to people dying from the radium water. I feel like Radithor was like a multiverse story in Marvel where like 1980s Thor fought our Thor. Yes. It's like Radithor. <laughs> it's like Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. It's like a philosophy major. <laughs> He's the best bouncer in Valhalla. He's got his hat on backwards. Yeah. <laughs> that fucker. What is the, the Thor crown? It's on backwards. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what does a Viking hat look backwards? <laughs> That's not like the main axis, right? <laughs> he's got a set of sunglasses. He's got eye patches over both eyes. Sweet. Um, so the Wall Street Journal reported a person's death from Radathor with the headline, the radium water worked fine until his jaw came off. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when did they report that? That was like, I think in the 1910s, maybe, or something like that. Hey, you know what? I didn't know people were that good at cause and effect back then. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds silly to say, but like, I didn't know they were smart enough to be like, well, wait, maybe it was the glow water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they figured it out pretty quick. Yeah. Because actually, even in like 1903, okay, so that's what, like five years after the discovery of radium, there were people straight up saying that radium is potentially very dangerous right. and that it can cause a lot of problems. The... Cotton turning into dust was actually, you know, something that a lot of people took as an example of, like, how fucked up that this shit can't can possibly be. be good. It seems unnatural. Yeah. But then some people are like, no, but I love science, and I want science on my mouth. You know, and it's like, whoopsie right. lazy. Yeah, and, you know, it was sort of like a, I think in the 1950s and stuff like that, the nuclear age and everything. Right. There was a lot of hype about, it's like, oh, we're entering into a new nuclear era. And like, you know, in the Fallout series, it's like, oh, cars have nuclear reactors right. and all this shit. And it was the same with the 1910s or 19-teens. Right, or right. Or from, from 1900 to 1920. Right. It was this whole time period where it was like, radium is the shit and it's going to revolutionize all of life. I mean, people forget, but that was like Einstein was doing his shit at that point. Sigmund Freud, like, sure. it was really like La Belle Epoque, right? Like right before World War One, just like, rap, <laughs> just like, right. It's it's kind of like nowadays how like there's a lot of people who like goop, and there's other people who warn that like look, it's provable that your vagina turns into Gwyneth Paltrow. Wow! But like, (laughs) but like, and yet, you know, it has. There's not a Wall Street uh, story about it. Not yet. Not yet. Uh. (laughs) Goop worked fine until her vagina turned into Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Dangerous. (laughs) So, despite. Kind of like there being some knowledge out there that this was dangerous. No one told some of the workers that were working with radium, including working with things like radium paint. Okay, okay. okay. So from 1917 to 1926, uh, the U.S. Radium Corporation. It's nice when they had like really straightforward names. Yeah. The U.S. Radium Corporation made radium paint called Undark. I, I'm sure, like, the entire Bioshock series was inspired by that word. As soon as I read Undark. <laughs> Undark! I was like, holy shit. I'm sure they just ran with that. <laughs> and they sold watches with the numbers and hands painted in this paint so that the watch would glow in the dark. That does sound cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And young women were often the painters, okay, uh, in the factories and everything. This was near the tail end of World War One and everything like that. Right. So we needed some labor. And yeah, these ladies young... would often do that kind of stuff. And, and they were trained the classical way in terms of paintbrushing. Right, yeah. So to, you know, get the little numbers on those fucking watches, you need a really fine point on your brush, right? right? And so they were told the best way to get a fine point is to put it in your mouth. Okay, okay. Use your lips. Okay. okay. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I'm going to look at you. <laughs> I'm talking about lips. Um, so, so, you know, you kind of you use your lips a little bit. You kind of purse them up a little bit. And then, and then you get that fine tip on that brush head. Okay, right? very phallic. And what that meant is that they were, every day, ingesting radium. Okay. Okay, so they But were... not that much, right? Come on. So... Uh, in about six months of work, they were consuming about four milligrams of radium, which is thousands of times more than the lethal dose. Everybody dies Sunday, Sean. <laughs> that is true. Don't be afraid of radium, <laughs> right? So painting these watches with radium was considered a pretty good job. Like it paid pretty well. It was during the radium craze. So it meant like women were doing something that was considered kind of cool. Right. And <laughs> working with this radium paint meant that there was like this kind of radium dust that would form. 
and it would get on their clothes and it would be like glowy sparkly so they would sometimes wear their nice dresses to work specifically so that they could like go to the speakeasy later and like have like a shiny dress wow yeah dude okay (laughs) so that all this stuff happy ending right (laughs) they're all fine (laughs) All's well that ends well. (laughs) So these young women began falling sick with things like anemia and jaw necrosis. So is that what that sounds like is... The yeah. jaw dies? <laughs> yeah, the jaw dies. Um, <laughs> and so w- one of the things is that radium likes to go to a lot of places where there's calcium and it gets replaced with, or it gets swapped in for calcium. Wow. Element-wise, it's very similar. So a lot of places in your body where calcium gets used, radium supplants it, and then it's just popping out radiation in that spot. So bones are very susceptible. That's fucking cool, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's bad. I got you. So jaw necrosis, <laughs> bone cancers and agonizing deaths, okay? And the media started calling them radium girls or ghost girls because they would waste away, all right? And the last of them died in 1959, Josephine Berticelli, who was the 43rd radium girl to die in New Jersey, the site of the first watch factory. But not the only watch factory. And also the great-grandmother of Jersey Shore. (laughs) All of them. Oh, no. (laughs) That's why they're all a little funny. (laughs) They're radioactive genes. (laughs) (laughs) So thousands more women probably suffered from worsened health over the decades because of the radium they ingested. That's Uh, pretty impressive that not all of them, like, full-blown died, though. Right. So not all of them died in the very, very public way. Right. Some of them just died quiet-like. Yes. In the Pine Barrens. Right. Yeah. And so a very, very public lawsuit was Please, filed. Please, Christopher, I love you. But no, you betrayed the Sopranos. Wow. It's time to go to the Pine Barrens. Nice. That's good. Radium Girls. Wow. Spin up. Holy shit. Or, yeah, I guess that could be a spin up. It doesn't really make sense, but it's good. Okay. <laughs> so there was a very public lawsuit that was filed by five of the Radium Girls against the company, and it resulted in a settlement in which they received $10,000. And $600 per year that they were alive, which okay. was not very long for those five radium girls. Yeah, but $10,000 back then, Sean, that's a lot of nickel pops. Right? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of, what are those called? Egg creams? <laughs> Don't talk to me about egg cream. <laughs> You're just literally looking at me with such lust. Is that what they're called? Talking about my egg, egg cream. It's a lot of egg creams down at the pharmacist. Anyway, <laughs> so their graves... Of these five radium girls are still radioactive. Holy to this shit. Day. So you can take a Geiger counter to them. Don't be respectful. Damn. But, but they're still radioactive to this day. Man, it is terrible what communism and the social... What communism and the Soviet Union did to people, huh? That this could happen under <laughs> Stalin's watch goes to show you how evil socialism is. Wait a minute. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I do think that this lawsuit and sort of the very public fallout, so to speak... It resulted in some attempts at reforming, like, uh, almost like OSHA-style stuff, like what companies had to inform their workers about. Because some of the women, when they were taught this, uh, this pointing lick-lick. technique, yeah. yeah, yeah, asked the managers and the higher-ups, like, hey, this paint is safe, right? And they were like, yes. Yeah. Super safe and maybe even good for you. So, <laughs> right, like, right, maybe. Yeah, so, you know, like, that's the kind of shit that, you know, I think... Nowadays, you say that kind of stuff, maybe you get in a little bit more trouble. Right. That's what we have now. That's what they put over uh, faucets in Flint, Michigan. Maybe safe for you. (laughs) I don't trust a sign like that. You know what I'm saying? Someone says that to me, it's like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) All right. So let's take a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about our final spoopy story. Ooh, get ready, guys, for ghosts. The following is an actual advertisement. Hi, my name is David Mendez and I host the Papa PhD podcast. Is it about parenthood? Not really, but it can be. Is it about the PhD? Not exclusively. It's about growing up during grad school and about the possibilities and best practices around starting to carve and shape your career path early on. Let's say you're asking yourself, what kind of job can I get with a PhD? Or telling yourself, No one hires PhDs outside academia. Well, then this podcast is for you. Tune in to Papa PhD every Thursday and listen to my guests' insightful stories of finding their way in academia, but also in entrepreneurship and in the most diverse sectors of the job market. 
Each week, I will cover themes ranging from work-life balance and mental health in grad school to advice on job hunting and career building. So go to papaphd.com or subscribe on your favorite platform to follow us every Thursday and to take part in the conversation. You know, I used to be a radium girl. <laughs> I remember I was known as Benedict Lefrond, and I'd go to Harlem and all the boys would paint me up and paint me down in shining, splendid radium paint. Fuck. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> uh, would you like to paint me now, boys? Said the man, Neil. <laughs> 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 yeah, sure, I'll paint you. Give me a brush. Nathan, don't do it. <laughs> Nathan reached out for the ghostly ghoulish brush. That ain't no brush. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, wait. We're here on a mission. We must tell stories three, and we've only done two stories. Sean, what is our third tale? Our third and final tale is about ghosts, witches, in the Royal Society. <laughs> hold on, wait though. Hold on. Before we do that, yeah. what was that German dude's name from all the way fucking in the first story? Ah, I see him amongst this assembly of ghouls. It's Alexander von Humboldt. Okay. Yeah, he was a really big deal, and he just banged ass everywhere. <laughs> like, he was all about that. He was so anthropologically specific about that booty. Well, there you go, everyone. Go ahead and Wikipedia Alexander yeah. von Humboldt. He was the first man to sail up and explore Amazonian ass. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, so... <laughs> first accredited. All right, so let's begin the story then on ghosts, witches, and the Royal Society. So... Spooky, freaky, deaky science. Topic number three. Ghost Witches and the Royal Society. Ooh. Wow, right. All right. <laughs> Travel back in time with me. Okay. <laughs> the place is England, and the time is the mid-17th century. That's 1650 yeah, More or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a pretty spooky time. If it's century, you subtract one. That's good. You're very brave. First century, zero. <laughs> very confusing, the first century. <laughs> it was a spooky time, okay? Because the Salem witch trials, they haven't even happened yet. Okay, nah, but they're coming. They're coming in a few decades uh, in okay. America, okay? That's spooky America. This is spooky England. It's true that, like, witches were like... You know, this was a witch trial period. There was, like, plenty of witch hunts. Kind of around the 15th, like, mid-1700s, there was a lot of witch trials. People just, like, killed people that way. Yeah, it was a good way to get rid of folks you didn't like. There's and a so Doctor Who episode about it. Oh, shit. Wasn't that great? All right. <laughs> Don't recommend. It was a time of a lot of religious upheaval, right? Especially, you know, we got these Anglicans in England, and they're dealing with both Puritanism and Catholicism. There's a lot of stuff going on. Prosecutions for witchcraft in Europe had hit their peak in sort of like the 50 years between 1580 and 1630. So in Elizabeth's time. So just a little bit before where we are right now. But we're just looking at the recent past and fucking witch trials were happening all the time. And just because it's not the peak anymore, you know, it's dropping off a little bit, but there's still witch trials. Yeah. And so while, you know, the 1660s seems like a very long time ago to us... And it's a pretty spooky time. It was actually one of increased skepticism of the existence of things like witches, demons, and ghosts. Right. We kind of just started tinkering on, like, Baconian empiricism, right? Like, that's, like, maybe two generations prior to this. People are starting to think of natural philosophy in, in incrementally more scientific terms, at least as science as we understand it, with hypotheses. Right. And experimentation and, and trying to verify. Yeah. So starting in, like, 1585, so some examples of this witchy stuff, right? 1585, an English Jesuit named William Weston was going around. He was performing all of these high-profile exorcisms. And kind of similar time, 1596, there was this Puritan named John Darrell, and he was going around casting demons out of children, okay? And by 1602, not that long later, both of them had essentially been condemned for fraudulent practices sure. and were investigated for making shit up. So this was a time period where at least some people were like, 
that sounds like bullshit to me. Right. I mean, people forget that. But even during like witch crazes and periods of witchcraft, people still were also on the lookout for charlatans. Right. And we're like, wait a minute. You didn't really cast the devil out of my kid. You know, give me my money back. Right. And uh, this was a time period where there was actually a little bit of things being said by like medical doctors and stuff like that. Right. That like, hey, some of these things that we're calling possessions... These people might just be sick. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and so there was this, there was a body hypothesis now for, for things like possession, which was like, oh, it's just an illness. It's not actually some kind of evil spirit. Right. And then the counter was like, oh, it's an evil spirit causing a physical illness and blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Right. Chicken so and egg. There's some back and forth. And so actually a lot of this like investigating fraudulent practices was part of an Anglican push to say that a lot of possessions and stuff were either completely made up, like some charlatan, like you were saying, or some kind of misinterpretation of medically stuff. And it was because two of the big groups, religious groups that were doing a lot of these exorcist-style things were Catholics and Puritans. Right. Sort of the competitors of the Anglicans. Basically, like, the super hardcore religious guys. And the Anglicans are there being like, I don't know. Yeah, they're like, you maybe know? we calm down a little bit. Yeah. So the Anglicans were kind of on this skeptic side, right? But then the issue got real thorny for Anglicans with a bunch of publications from Thomas Hobbes. Wait, Sean, what is an Anglican? It's, uh, it's the Church of England fuckers, right? Right. So they split off from the Catholic Church in the 1520s, I think 1526, because Henry VIII was like, I want to bang another lady. Yeah, he wanted a divorce, but you have to get, like, the Pope to grant it to you or whatever. And there was some, you know, Queen Mary after him was Catholic. So it was pretty awkward by 1600, whether you were, you know, Anglican or Catholic. And then the Puritans were the really douchey Protestants who were like, Anglicans are not Protestant enough. Right. So by 1650, Anglicans are, like, kind of in this awkward place where they're trying to make basically this middle route of, like, still keeping the bishops. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, we didn't super talk about this, but 1650 is, like, either... You're still in, I think, the English Civil War, aren't you? Is that... Yeah, the... I, I feel like Cromwell and all that shit was like... I feel like 53 is when that ended. Something like that. I'm a little anyway, embarrassed that I forgot. Well, but the point is... <laughs> this is this is a time where, like, these issues... Is really were, live. Yeah, like, people were fucking dying. You understand? Like, right. like there was a war going on. Right. And the Puritans had kind of seized control for a period of time. And right. the kings got kind of expelled and were like, they were like chilling in France or some shit, right? Charles I died. Ah, and nice. then like the, you know, his son was chilling. He was the Bonnie King, fucked some shit, hung out with Newton. But he hadn't come back yet. Yeah, so actually the fun, so I mentioned Thomas Hobbes. People might know Hobbes from... Uh, like Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Yeah. From uh, yeah, exactly that from one. a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the tiger was publishing papers in this time period is very confusing. Ancient tiger. No, Thomas Hobbes from Leviathan, he, the state of nature, right? Social kind of known contract, as a natural philosopher and political science-y kind of guy. Right, and he was writing during the Civil War. He was hiding out in France because he was, uh, I think, a royalist basically, right. and so he was like, "We need a strong executive. We need to like put a bunch of power into him." So that he can, like, fucking keep this warfare crazy shit from going on. Right. Like, that the state of nature of humanity is this warfare. This nasty, brutish, and short. Right, yeah, so... And what's often forget, though, because we usually just summarize the top line of Hobbes, is that Hobbes spends a lot of time developing, like, a material theory right. to substantiate his natural philosophy. And his, and his theory is very materialistic. Uh, which was a little naughty pants back then, among some circles, like Puritans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was building off of a little bit of, like, Cartesian philosophy about how matter is stuff that takes up space and has dimensions. And basically, he was taking this kind of, like, really heady philosophy stuff, and he was kind of driving it to its ultimate conclusion, which in that philosophy would be that, hey, everything is made out of matter. Right. That there's nothing that's not matter somewhere. Wow. And so he was actually what I think is called a plenist, which is that everywhere, outer space, here on Earth, inside of our bodies, in water, the air around us, it's all matter. Right. Was his idea. Right. And, you know, I mean, so first of all, that's not really what we think anymore. Right. right that's we not like, exactly true. But it is getting you know, maybe a couple steps closer to our current materialist framework. Right, right. And so one of the issues is that his particular brand of this materialist, materialism kind of thing, had a suspiciously atheistic bent. Right. It's like, it. well, what is God? Right. If everything is made out of material, if everything has a body and exists, right. 
then what is the soul? And and Hobbes is like, well, God's the a big guy upstairs, moron. He's uh, he's hanging out somewhere right, else. Right. So Hobbes was basically like, eh, he, God's got a beard. He's not a pig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you stupid? <laughs> and, God's Vincent D'Onofrio. But uh, that did mean that Hobbes basically did not believe in the immaterial soul. Right. He didn't believe in souls everlasting mm. and unchanging. Right. Well, it's embarrassing that Heisenberg proved him wrong so much. <laughs> uh, the soul is more of this uncollapsible wave function. Well, Hobbes was dead by then. So yeah, that's okay. true. It wasn't that embarrassing. <laughs> he was uh, embarrassed in non-existence because he didn't believe in the afterlife. Right. Um, so what that means is that Hobbes basically denied the existence of the immaterial. And a consequence of that belief is that he did not think that witches or ghosts could exist. Okay. Because mm. ghosts are supposed to be incorporeal beings. Right. And witches are supposed to make pacts with spirits and demons and shit like that right. to get so their that's powers. faulty. Right. He's like, that's really just a funny lady. Yeah. So yeah. he was like, none of that shit is real. Okay. Right. And this was awkward for a lot of the Christians at the time, including the Anglicans, because basically... Depending on what degree you buy into Hobbes, you start to get to a point where Christianity starts to sound a little goofy. Right. There's certain parts of it that don't start adding up quite so well. And so the Anglicans were put in this spot where they kind of needed to walk back a little bit of their really eager denying the existence of, like, witches and stuff like right. that. And so, you know, there's a lot of different people that were yelling at Hobbes. And in that process of yelling at him, they started defending the idea of the existence of witches and ghosts. And some of these people were people like Joseph Glanville, Henry Moore, and Robert Boyle. Okay, cool. Three members of the Royal Society. So two schmucks and a gas man. <laughs> yes. I mean, but not to preempt us. So Glanville, kind of an idiot. <laughs> Right. So he, he was not uh, what I would call like the top tier. He wasn't an A-lister. <laughs> he wasn't an A-list in the Royal Society. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. The Royal Society, you start finding out like a lot of gentlemen from the time period were a part of the Royal Society. Right. Enough so that Hobbes was like kind of noticeably snubbed. Yeah. Like not in the Royal Society. It's because some of the Royal Society members did not get along with him. He was kind of irascible. Yeah, 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 he was. And he was, he was kind an of irascible old. taint. He, he was getting a little old by the time yeah, the Royal sure. Society was formed, and his dickishness really kind of elevated in that. Yeah, Royal Society was really more of a sex orgy cult <laughs> yeah. that, like, occasionally would like try to develop new gas law theory. <laughs> so Joseph Glanville, that first name, he was a huge cheerleader for natural philosophy and the Royal Society. Okay, well, I have to hold on. Does everyone know what the Royal Society is? Should, do, do we need to? Say I, a I mean, just words? to be sure, it was like an organization patronized by the King of England that like would do. Science, but it's kind of pretty early in empiricism. So science and natural philosophy were kind of the same fuck ground, you know, and they'd bang too. Like, it was like a good time. It was like high class science. It's classy science. Right. And it was not really affiliated with any university. Right. right. It was kind of its own setup outside of a university system. Although a lot of the people who ended, who did set it up were coming out of like Oxford and, you know, everything like that. Right. Eventually, you know, we have like Isaac Newton running around, right? Hook is a really famous, you know, Royal Society member. I mean, you just mentioned Boyle and Boyle's another um, right. fairly famous. If right. anyone remembers their chemistry. Boyle is kind of an OG as far as like <laughs> famous early Royal Society members before right. Newton. Yeah. He was like the biggest name in science in England before Newton. Right. But first, Joseph Glanville. Not a big deal in the Royal Society. Right. Um, he was a serious Christian, okay, and a big cheerleader for the Royal Society and a big, big believer in witches. What a okay? schmuck. He published accounts of witchcraft that he gathered along with information for, like, how witchcraft was supposed to work and, like, you know, firsthand accounts of, like, oh, this haunting and stuff like that. Maybe the earliest recorded story we have of a poltergeist his illustrations collected were the inspiration for Kiki's Delivery Service. <laughs> yes. Very good. Yeah, very good. Yes, wouldn't it? A young Miyazaki was flipping through the yeah, Glanville so, book. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it was really good. Oh, Edith's in there. So. Soka Glanville. <laughs> so then the second name that I mentioned, Henry Moore, was a philosopher and a buddy of Glanville and Boyle, who actually was the editor of Glanville's, like, Big Book of Witches. <laughs> and, uh... Medea's Big Book of Witches! Tyler Perry's newest film! So, so that book is called, uh, Seducimus Triumphatus. Oh my god, that is great. <laughs> Seducimus! Yeah, so, do, do you know what that's in reference to? The uh, Seducies? 
Oh, like weren't that wasn't that one of the um, rival tribes the, to the Pharisees? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Very good. Oh, God, I'm so proud of you. From, the, <laughs> from like, you. The, like the Second Temple era. Yeah, right? sure, sure. And sure. so this this shit's like in the Bible and everything like that. And the idea from what we've kind of gathered from different writings around the time is that, oh, and definitely what Glanville believed was that the Sadducees said basically that there is no spirit or soul, and that there is no afterlife. Right. And that essentially it's all just material stuff right now, and then we're going to die and there's nothing after. Yeah, smart guys. They were still Jewish. They still believed in the one God and everything like that, and they still followed a lot of the rules. But they felt like all of those things were just things you're supposed to do while you're here on Earth, and then after that, it's over. So basically, all of my Jewish friends growing up in Manhattan Beach are <laughs> Sadducees. <laughs> yeah. So basically... Glanville was writing about how there's a new Sadducism. Oh, the triumph of the Sadducees is right. the heresies of our time. Right. What right. Embodied by Hobbes, the <laughs> denialism of witches. Really specifically, the denialism of witches. Wow. And so Henry Moore was actually the editor of that book and published it after Glanville's death. You know, Andrew Jackson was right. Countries should not spend money on science. <laughs> <laughs> you get you give Glanville some money. This is what you get. Triapolis. <laughs> so, the last name out of the three that I said, Robert Boyle, as you mentioned, and as I kind of followed up a little bit, he's a bigger deal. Yeah, he is a bigger deal. Uh, he was quieter about witches. He didn't speak up quite so often about right, it. He's too busy doing like actual laws. <laughs> yes, but nonetheless, he still wrote in letters that he definitely believed in witches and ghosts. And that he'd express some skepticism about any one particular story. Right. He'd be like, we don't know if this story is 100% true. But. Come on, guys. There are definitely witches. It's gotta be witches. <laughs> yeah. So he fully believed in them. No doubt. He, it's in his letters, right? Now, Boyle is probably most famously known for Boyle's Law. Right. Which is sometimes expressed as P1V1 equals P2V2. Um, and it's basically about the... Rela- <laughs> Save me, P2V2. Very good. I say P1V1. <laughs> That's when the drone got shot by something. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I know. It's like terrible how George Lucas, like he would actually just like electroshock therapy just to make those sounds. Oh. Yeah. I was using George Lucas's words. <laughs> I see. Okay. That's a drug quote. Yeah. Um, Please don't sue us. <laughs> so, Boyle's law is that the pressure and volume of an ideal gas are inversely proportional when the temperature is held constant. Okay. Right. It eventually gets folded into the ideal gas law. It's something you learn in, like, high school chemistry. Yeah. It's important. It was a pretty big deal. And he was a pretty big deal in the early royal society. He was, um, he was part of the founders. He was maybe the biggest deal until Isaac Newton. Maybe Hook, who was his, like, apprentice. Yeah. Uh, who, like, came up with, like, the spring law and all kinds of stuff like that. Right. So. The fuck is the spring law? Uh, it has to do with the amount of energy that you get from an ideal spring. Oh, and yeah. And so, like, the longer the spring is and kind of related to a constant of its compressibility, you get, like, a certain amount of force out. Damn. Yeah. That's smart. It is smart. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, these Royal Society guys... These three of them anywhere, you're basically taking the position that it is dangerous to deny the existence of spirits and witches. Because if you do, you're kind of on a slippery slope to the point where you deny the existence of the soul and of God, right? And uh, that sort of thing started spilling over into the actual science that people like Boyle were doing, okay? Because Boyle had set up basically an air pump to make a little vacuum, okay? And he had made this vacuum, and he, he did all kinds of cool shit. Like, he showed that, oh, candles stop burning in a vacuum. Right. Or, like, sound does not go through a vacuum. Right. This was, like, cool science shit. That was surprising. And it does prove, I mean, if you have a vacuum, there's no matter in there. Right. Right. So that's the thing, is that Boyle probably understood the kind of philosophical implications of his experiment. Right. But he kept quiet about it. He was more about the science for this. Right. But Glanville... And Hobbes and Moore had a real great time fighting over this. Right. Where Hobbes was arguing that basically this experiment didn't make any kind of sense. And Moore was saying, hey, since there is a vacuum, that's where spirits are. Right. And that's where your soul is. And therefore, that's where God can be is where there's vacuum. Right. Because there's no matter there. And so it became this whole like fucking crazy rigmarole over these experiments with like an air pump. Wow. And shit like that. So, basically, to summarize, witches exist because demons can hang out in vacuums and ghosts live in outer space. Damn. I kind of believe that. 
Yeah. I'm a Scientologist. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood finally got to you. Halloween reveal. Oh. Woo! Okay, cool. Across the Hellborn room, the silence fell. Broken by a sigh, Neil. Three stories you did tell. Geneva rules, they still apply, even where the dead reside. But as the brothers, too, walked towards the portal, Neil grabbed Nate. Where are you going, mortal? Nate blubbered. With my brother with whom I told spooky science stories threefold. Nah, 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 you's a different person. Don't protest till your condition worsen. What are your three stories, do pray tell? Or you'll stay with us forever in the pits of hell. Nathan blubbered thus. You ever hear about the anal fissure I got in Seoul? I don't want to hear about your anal fissure. You at all curious about the first Anglo-Ashanti war? That's not science. How about my top ten list for most overrated M. Night Shyamalan movies? Enough! Neil screeched, and outstretched hands pulled Nathan back into their ghoulish den. Help me, brother! Nathan cry! But it was too late. The portal closed and disappeared forever. Now, late at night, every night since then, in that lab room in L.A., Sean could hear his screams and nightly dreams as Nate the ghouls did flay. And from the furry brow of mice, his screeching ricochet. So journeyed Sean across the waves to the Scottish moors. His blood-stained claws upturned the maw that had eaten Neil before. But instead of any murdered man, he found a million mice, skittering, chittering, ever flittering, murmuring Nathan's name. A final sanction from damnation for Sean the Knave. So, dear listener, never forget the lesson of Sean's crimes. Don't murder people. Happy Halloween.